Hi all, this is Michael. And uh, today I'd like to shift gears a little bit. And I'd like to tell you about seven visitations of Yahshua that occurred in my life over the course of uh, uh, four years. And uh, so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to talk about each one of these seven visitations, beginning with the first. And, uh, and I'll end up giving you some background information, uh, background story, backstory into, uh, into how these occurred. Uh, not necessarily why, but how they occurred, what happened, what he taught me. And, uh, and anyway, so let's get a move on. Do you know what it's like to have your life virtually hijacked at an early age? And it's as though a power far greater than yourself has grabbed a hold of you, has got you by the short hairs, and your life is nothing but one long misery. And that's pretty much the place I was in when I was in my early 20s. I was held fast in the grip of alcoholism, and I was being swallowed up in cocaine addiction. These were, uh, oh, sheesh. When you're in a place like that, there's really only one or two places you can go. One is life and one is death. There's, you know, there's no in between. That might sound kind of lame, but I tell you what, when you're a youngster, and I was, I was in my early 20s. As a matter of fact, uh, my first visit to AA, I think I was 23 years old. I was in college at the time. And it seems as though suicide was a constant companion, and it was uh, it, it was nasty, uh, especially if you don't know God. And I didn't know God back then. I didn't know him at all. So uh, suicide looked to be a, a, a pretty good way to escape the misery. Let me tell you what happened. This, uh, um, this one day, it was uh, just before Christmas vacation, and it was back in 1970, maybe maybe 77. And uh, anyway, so uh, I had settled on myself. I was miser miserable, in despair all the time. And I was back east going to college in, uh, at a place called Ryerson in Toronto, Canada. I'm an American. I'm from, uh, I'm from Washington State. But uh, uh, through a series of uh, circumstances, I found myself in Toronto, Canada back in the late 70s. So here I am. I'm in my, uh, in my apartment. And, and I had a roommate, and uh, we were both um, we were both actors, and we were going to uh, a theater school there. Ryerson was a very very good school, uh, had a very good acting school, um, probably the you know the best in Canada. Anyway, so uh, when I'd gotten out of the Marine Corps, I'd, I'd been in uh, I'd been in Okinawa in Japan, you know, for a portion of that, and I came down with a real severe case of bronchitis. And, uh, and, and it stuck with me for a long time, especially because of the fact that I drank a lot of beer and a lot of alcohol, and you get a lot of phlegm in your throat. Anyway, so uh, this one morning, and I was just getting ready to go back to, uh, go back to Seattle. It was Christmas vacation. And, uh, and this one morning, I got up, and I started to cough. And what would happen when I had this bronchitis is that I'd cough really hard, and my throat would seize up. And normally I could just try to force myself to relax a little bit and breathe through my nostrils until my throat opened back up. Well, this one morning, I'm, I'm in the bathroom and I start coughing, and it was, it was bad. It was the worst I'd had at that point. 
and I coughed harder and harder and harder, and my throat seized up. Well, I tried to do my typical routine of just relaxing, you know, uh, until it opened back up, but it didn't. And when I was in the Marine Corps, we'd gone through, uh, you know, hand-to-hand combat training, and in, uh, and one of the uh, one of the things we had to do in boot camp was we had to, uh, you know, choke each other out, you know, with certain choke chokehold moves that uh, that they teach you. Well. When you're the victim and you're getting choked out, one thing that you're going to notice is that when the oxygen is cut off, your brain is on fire. You, it just feels like it's on fire. Well, this is what began happening to me in my bathroom as I was choking, and I could not get that that uh, could not get my throat to open back up. As I felt my brain go on fire, you know, and sweat begins to pour out your forehead. And anyway, so I'm coughing and coughing, and and and, and as you you know, anyway, as you're coughing, you can't get another breath back in. You're just forcing out whatever air you got in you, right? Anyway, so it's like I, I stumble out into the living room, and my roommate was, uh, you know, he, he was watching, and he didn't exactly know what was going on. As a matter of fact, he saw my eyes bugging out, and he thought I was trying to do some kind of theater routine, that I was working on some part, right? And he was, you know, going to sit there and critique me. And anyway, but then all of a sudden, I think he saw the fear and the terror that I had in my eyes because I, I was starting to black out and I couldn't breathe. So he came over and he thought I had something stuck in my throat. So he came up behind me and he and he, uh, and he began to do a Heimlich maneuver on me. And so uh, he he had me in his arms. He was behind me and he was trying to do this Heimlich. Well, he was, you know, I mean, uh, I was getting the last couple of breaths of air out and I still could not get anything back in. I I, I couldn't breathe. And so I have this scene that's playing out in, in my mind. And, uh, and and I'm going, oh, God, oh, God, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And even as I said that, you know, my throat was not opening up. And, and finally I got to a place and I was just about to black out. And I remember saying, I want to live. I want to live. I want to live. And boom, my throat opened up. And it took about... 10 or 15 minutes before I could breathe properly again because I was shaking and trembling because I knew I had almost just died. Well, just a little bit of information here is that for, you know, a, a, maybe a day or two before that, like I said, I was I was caught fast in the grip of alcoholism. I was losing everything. I was miserable, entertaining self-hatred and self-contempt and all this kind of crap that alcoholics go through. And so I had settled on committing suicide when I got back home to Seattle. I didn't want to do it in Toronto. I wanted to go home and do it. So then, like I say, then this event, this this choking, happened about uh, you know maybe a day or two after I'd had that thought. When I'd had that thought, it settled down into me like a thick darkness, and I went, "Oh my God, I'm really going to do it." Okay. So, but after I had this, I want to live, I want to live, I want to live, and my throat opened up, all right? Everything changed at that moment. Everything changed. You know, a brief little lesson that, I, that I'd learned there is that, uh, and it's, it's actually pretty important, is that uh, you don't need to come before God and tell him what you don't want. Come before him and tell him what you do want. It's not enough to say, I don't want to die. What works is, I want to live. See, because now you have chosen between death and life, and you've chosen life, right? When 
you say, I want to live, that is a choice for life. So I just wanted to throw that out there just very, very briefly. It's a, you know, it's, it's a small little lesson. It's not the main lesson, but it's a small little lesson that proved to be very important throughout my life is to uh, tell God what I do want. All right, so after this incident of, uh, uh, of choking in my, uh, in my apartment, and this was probably, you know, maybe December 21st or something like that. Anyway, so I go down to the airport that day or that afternoon and catch my flight back to uh, Seattle to go home. And uh, true to form, you know, uh, I didn't mess around too much the first couple of days. But the day after Christmas, I got together with some of my, my buddies from high school. And uh, anyway, to, uh, to make a long story short, and I was blacked out through a great deal of this. You know, we'd gone to, uh, we'd gone to a couple cocktail lounges, and we were just out partying and whatnot. And I was drinking beer and chasing it with peppermint schnapps and just, just losing it. Anyway, so uh, so this night on December twenty sixth, nineteen seventy seven, right? I'm out with a you know. At this point, I'm 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 down to like one one last pal, right? And so I find myself. I don't remember any of it. I just remember going to this cocktail lounge, right? It was out in the uh, south end of King County in Seattle. And all I remember is going there. But the next thing I remember is. I'm coming out of a blackout, and I'm absolutely hysterical. Uh, I'm in a cell, and uh, and I and as I'm coming out of this blackout, you know, it, it it it's weird. I heard myself screaming and almost screaming hysterically, and I was crying out to God right in the midst of this blackout. Oh God, I can't take this anymore. I can't take it anymore. Oh God, oh God, oh God, help me, please help me. And so, uh, anyway, so I, you know, came out of this blackout, and not too long after that, you know, they, they let me out of the cell, and, and what had happened to me was I got the living crap beat out of me that night. I I'm glad I don't remember it, because I was bruised all over my face, bruised on my neck, and bruised in my chest, and I tell you, someone just went to town on me, you know, and like I say, I'm really glad I don't remember it. Anyway, so, um, so from the uh, police station, they, uh, uh, they they bust me to this place called Furcrest, and it was um, it was uh, alcoholic detox in the north end of Seattle. So here I am, man. I'm I'm like uh, what, I don't know, 23 years old, and I, I find myself, you know, now I'm I'm fellowshipping with a lot of like skid row winos because they were on detox too. You know, it was kind of a kind of a strange place for a young guy to be, and I was the youngest one in there, and. Uh, you know, I probably look worse than, uh, you know, than half the winos that, uh, you know, probably where they camped out on the weekends. Anyway, so um, so after four days of detox, they, they let me out. And so uh, anyway, so I had to go back home, and, and I'd, I'd lost my coat. It's the middle of winter, so, you know, uh, I had them drop me off right not too far uh, it, it was, I had to take uh, I-5, which is a freeway that runs through Seattle. And anyway, so uh, they dropped me off on this street called uh, Mercer Street, which was just a hop, skip, and a jump to my dad's office building. So I went in to see my dad, and uh, he was pissed. He was he was pissed. He was really pissed. And so uh, you know, he, he pretty much uh, laid down the law, and he said, Michael, you either go to AA and you deal with this problem, or I'm cutting off all your funds, and uh, you can go out and get a job. And uh, your acting career is done, toast. It's over now. 
Choose. What do you want? You want your life? Do you want your career? Or do you want to go out and be a tradesman? Well, there's nothing wrong with being a tradesman, obviously, but uh, in the family that I grew up with, if you were not white-collar and highly successful, uh, you were pretty much down there with ditch diggers. In, in, I guess in my dad's mind, that, that's the way it was. Anyway, so, uh, so I was scared. I was really scared, and I was still kind of hurting. And so I said, Dad, I'll do AA. I'll do AA. Don't, don't throw me out of school. So, uh, so I did, and when I uh, ended up going back to Toronto, I, I called AA, and uh, a couple of guys came over that night and took me to a meeting, and it was, uh, it was absolutely fantastic. They were actually young guys. You know, it's like I said, I was 22 or 23, and the guy that came over was probably maybe 25, and, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, I ran into some people that I really identified with. Well, the reason why I'm bringing up AA is because you, you, it, I, I met God in AA, believe it or not. I met him in AA, or, or he began to manifest himself to me while I was in there. And uh, part of it had to do with the fact that, uh, you know, I, I was going to meetings all the time, and there's this really cute gal in there, and she was running a meeting. This, uh, this was like a Tuesday night or something like that. And uh, and she had become a uh, she'd become a Christian, so she was uh, testifying about, about Yahshua. And uh, before that, I didn't want to hear about him. I didn't want to hear about any of this stuff. I couldn't stand Christianity. I didn't like Christians. And uh, I never had a thing against Yahshua. As a matter of fact, when I was a little boy, and all, all the way up, and, you know, I'd watch all the Jesus movies, right? Uh, every spring when they came out, I'd always watch them. And, uh, and I'd always look upon Yahshua. And, you know, and when it came to the time for them to, uh, you know, to crucify him, man, I'd be, I'd be crying all over the place. It just... It was just so hard for me to fathom that anybody could do to him what they did to him. I just couldn't fathom it, and it'd break my heart. I remember the first time I'd ever heard the story. I was maybe three or four years old. My mother told it to me. I remember it to this day because I think I almost went hysterical. You know, my mom's telling me the, the, you know, the story about, uh, about Jesus, right? And she gets to the part about, uh, about them uh, you know, crucifying him, and I remember I'm going, Mommy, Mommy, no, no, Mommy, why'd they do that? Mommy, why'd they kill him? You know, and I was just, oh, I just lost it as a little child. Just lost it. So I, I, I never had a problem with Yahshua ever, but I had a whole lot of problem with Christianity. Uh, back in the day when I was young, the only thing I could see was a bunch of self-righteous hypocrites. And I didn't want to have a thing to do with them. But, uh, you know, sometimes God will put you in a place to where you have no choice, you know, and, and you listen. Well, he used a cute girl to open my ears and make me listen. All right, so, uh, so it, it broke down my resistance. So after this, you know, I, uh, I began to see God, you know, it, it, in just whatever way I could. I, I didn't really know anything. It's just that, man, I'd go to the bookstores and I'd, I'd buy books and, 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 you know, and try to understand uh, all this kind of stuff, but I'd, uh, you know, and this, this took place over the course of a couple of years after this, right? And I was, and you know, I'd be on the streets in Toronto. I'd, I'd uh, I spend my summers there often, and I'm always going down the street, and I always have my eye open looking for these Jesus people that used to be out there all the time, but now they weren't. I couldn't find them anywhere. You know, it's like, where's the Jesus people, man? When you need them, where'd they go? You know, where'd they go? Man, they aren't out there anymore, and I need to find one of these guys because I sure as heck don't want to go into a church 
right? I figured the Jesus people, man, they had some. Because when you did see these Jesus people out on the street, man, their eyes were lit. I mean, you could actually, I mean, you could see the light in them, right? And that attracted me. I was attracted to the light that I saw in people. So I remember this, uh, this, this one afternoon, and I thought, well, gee, I can't find any of the Jesus people. So I, there was this, like this bookstore. And I thought, well, let me just go to this bookstore, and I'm just going to stand around and listen and see what's going on. So these two guys in there, and they were talking. And, uh, and, and anyway, the, the, the conversation they were having was the one guy was saying, and he was really excited. He says, well, you know, in our church, what we've begun to do is we've begun to apply the words of Jesus. And it's, uh, it's, it's quite phenomenal. And I'm listening to this conversation, I'm going, Oh, no, no, no. You, you, you guys are only now applying the words, applying the teachings of Yahshua. I mean, what have you been doing for 2,000 years? You know, what have you guys been up to for 2,000 years? If only now you're beginning to apply his words. And that stuck with me. I thought, oh, God, no wonder Christianity is so messed up. They don't do the teachings of Yahshua. Oh, wow. Okay. So I had set myself at that point that whenever I figured out what Yahshua was telling someone to do, that's what you probably ought to do. Well, like I say, you know, I, I'd watch Jesus movies all the time when I, when I was a kid. So one thing that had always stuck with me is one that I don't think anybody really wants to apply, and that's turn the other cheek. Okay. So this summer, I had been, uh, I'd been living with this gal, and, uh, and she was a witch. And, uh, and I didn't know there was anything wrong with this stuff at that time. I just didn't know, right? I hadn't had any teachings. Anyway, so I had found this book, The Late Great Planet Earth, right, by Hal Lindsey. And, uh, and it scared the crap out of me. You know, it was, uh, you know, pretty much Christian eschatology, you know, or Baptist eschatology. And, uh, and it scared me. And, of course, at the end of every single chapter, right, that, uh, that Hal Lindsey wrote, you know, you get this, like, uh, you know, salvation prayer. You know, it's kind of a Romans 10 thing. But, uh, you know, at the end of every chapter, you, know, you get an opportunity. I invite Jesus into my heart, right, so on and so forth. And, and I'd do that, you know, and I'd kind of wait and go, huh, nothing happened. Oh, boy, maybe he didn't want to come into my heart. <laughs> you know, and that kind of stuff. So, uh, anyway, um, so like I'd say, I've been living with this uh, with this gal that was a witch, and uh, and what had happened now? When when I, I had read the late great Planet Earth and it kind of shook me up. Well, he had also had another book out there called Satan is Alive and Well and Living on Planet Earth, right? So I read that thing too, and I went, oh my gosh, all these all these books and all this crap I've been studying for uh, for years at this point. And and the thing is. I, I was looking for God, and I was looking for him everywhere. And and the one place I had refused to go <laughs> was Christianity. I did not want to go there when I was young, man. So I look at Buddhism. I look at Islam. Uh, I look at Tibetan Buddhism. I look at uh, what, what today uh, they call, uh, you know, maybe the Enlightenment movement or the New Age movement. Back then it was just flat-out occult, right? But like I say, I didn't know there was anything wrong with it. So anyway... Uh, uh, so when I when I read this book, I went, oh, my gosh. And so I gathered up everything I had. Man, I had a steamer trunk that I used to drag around from Toronto to Seattle. It was just filled with books. Man, that thing was so heavy, and I'm not very big. But I dragged this thing through the airports, you know. And uh, Anyway, so after I read this book, I gathered up every single book that I had. And, uh, and my, my apartment at that time was a townhouse. 
And so they had an incinerator down the hall where you take all your garbage and drop it down this tube into the incinerator. So I took all my books and took them down there, dropped them down the incinerator, and fried them up. Well, like I said, a gal that I was living with, she was a witch, and she was not faithful. <laughs> she was having an affair with this guy down the hall, this great big old Scotsman, right, named George. And uh, anyway, so uh, uh, so this this one day, you know, George finds out that I'd, I'd thrown out all these books, and he says, you need to come over here because I'm going to beat the living crap out of you. And I'm going, well, what for? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I, I had offended the witch, right, by throwing out all these nasty books. So I thought, oh, man, like I say, man, about the only thing I knew is about uh, about Yashu is, you know, someone piece of crap out of you, you got to turn the other cheek. So I, I went down to George's apartment and uh, and I knocked on the door. And I was fully expecting George to come out there and just, uh, you know, uh, you know, try to cold cock me. And he was about six four, man. I'm about five seven. So you know. <laughs> anyway, so I thought, well, you know, if I'm able, if I can get up, yeah, I'll, I'll turn the other cheek. Anyway, so when George came to the door, and he opened it up, he had uh, uh, he, he had he had a German Shepherd with him, and his German Shepherd was was a, a, a he'd been trained in Germany as an attack dog. Okay, so George opens the door, and uh, and and there's and the dog's name was Nicky. And and there's Nikki just just kind of sitting there, but George opens the door and he speaks a word in German to uh, to Nikki, and all of a sudden Nikki like bears his teeth and he lunged, you know, with the with his snarling fangs, man, right at my face, and uh, you know, and and I and, and I recoiled, and George had him by the collar, but he held that dog about three or four inches from my face, snarling, and it. Uh, yeah, caught me by surprise, caught me totally by surprise, and, uh, you know, scared the crap out of me, and so, man, I, I'm, I'm really off base at this point, you know, I'm really off, this is not what I was expecting to happen, so, uh, anyway, so I went into the, to George's apartment with him, I know you think it was pretty stupid, but I did, I went in there, and I let that guy castigate me for about, uh, for about a half hour, and in the midst of this castigation, he was saying, and I understand you've been coming up blankety blank, you know, effing Jesus freak. And uh, and I just shot out of my mouth, I have not, right? And all of a sudden, I felt my guts twist up, you know, and uh, I felt my guts twist up in a knot. And, uh, and, and, and when I left George's, you know, apartment, I was, uh, I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. And so I went uh, went back up to my bedroom, and man, I was devastated to the point where I'm curling up in a fetal position. Man, I had just denied the Son of God. I, 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 I you know, I mean, I, I didn't even really know him. <laughs> you know, we hadn't really met yet. But, and it's not that I was a Jesus freak, but you know what, folks, I really wanted to be one. I really, really did. So I had this, my guts got twisted up in knots. It was like, you know, at, at one point, like like cold steel through your gut. So I am laying on my bed, curled up in a fetal position, just groaning before God. And, and I said to him, you know, and I always called him Heavenly Father. I always did. And I said, Heavenly Father. I said, oh, God, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? So I came before him. And, and and I gave him, and I said, Heavenly Father, I I, I got to tell you, and I got to be real honest here, is that this is my career, you know, the theater, 
is all my hopes, all my dreams. It's, it's all I've, I've, you know, chewed on since I was a kid. And I said, but if you will accept me after all this, if you'll accept me, I will, I'll give you all my hopes. I'll give you all my dreams. I'll give it all to you if you'll just accept me. And he took me up on that. So this was in the summer of 79. Shortly thereafter, I left Toronto and uh, I went back home. I uh, left my career behind. Also, it had been about uh, 19 months since uh, since any alcohol had passed over my lips at this point. And, uh, of course, as you might, uh, might well imagine, after this, I took a tumble, and I took a hard tumble. I went back home to Seattle and began hanging out with my old friends again. Well, at this point, they'd, they'd gotten pretty heavy into cocaine. And, uh, and I'd never had this stuff before. But uh, when I got together with them, you know, we'd, uh, you know, they'd run a few lines for me, and I'd snort them, and, uh, man, I took the cocaine like a, like a fish takes the water. It was kind of like just right up my alley. Anyway, so for the next little while, every penny I had, I was blowing it on cocaine, cocaine and alcohol, until I found myself again back in AA in the, uh, in, in the spring of 1980. And, uh, and, when, and when I was in AA this time, I ran into a guy who, again, ended up, uh, you know, becoming a roommate. But uh, I'd been, again, I, I'd never quit, you know, trying to chase down God. I, I'd never quit at that, even though I was stumbling and I was, I was snorting coke like nobody's business and, you know, and getting shit-faced all the time and so on and so forth. I, I, I never stopped chasing after him. And I'd, I'd learned this term, you know, born again. And, gee, I wonder how that happens, right? I wonder how this born-again thing happens. So, again, you know, I go to the bookstores and I start buying books. Well, I found this book by Catherine Marshall, and it had to do with the laying on of hands. And so I read this thing about, you know, being filled with the Holy Spirit. So I read this book about this, and I went, oh, that must be the difference between the Christians that have light in their eyes and the ones that just have dark little tiny black pits, right? You know? So... Anyway, so I, I began going through the phone book, right, and going on. Saying, so I, I pull up uh, in the yellow pages, I look at the churches, and I'd look for a church that would say something about the Holy Spirit. And uh, you'd have to do quite a lot of searching to, uh, to find this stuff out. So I'm having this conversation with my roommate about, you know, trying to track down, uh, you know, laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit and whatnot. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, I went to this church, and, uh, and it was named after some city. And, uh, and he said, and I went there, and, uh, and they laid hands on me, and they prayed over me, and all of a sudden, man, I started speaking in a new language. And I'm going, whoa, really? And, uh, you know, so, anyway, he could not remember. He said it was, it was named after some city in, uh, in Pennsylvania, right? He couldn't remember anything either. Well, it was called Philadelphia, right? So anyway, so I tracked down this Philadelphia church, and this was just like right after Easter, right, in 1980. And so... Uh, it took me a while to get up the nerve. It did. I got up the nerve, and uh, it's this one you know Tuesday afternoon, right? And I walk into this church. Well, there's a bunch of guys in there, and they were taking down all their Easter decorations and whatnot. And I walk up to this guy, and I said, uh, "Hey, I understand that in this place you lay hands on people and you make them born again. Well, I want to do that. You know, uh, how, how do we do that? Let's you know, could we get this thing done? Right? I want to be born again." 
<laughs> and so the guy's going, whoa, man, right off the street, you know. So anyway, he said, all right, well, give, us, give me about uh, 10 minutes, and, and I'm going to round up some guys, and we're going to go in the pastor's office and pray for you. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And it's like, uh, hey, uh, is it okay if I step outside and have a cigarette, you know, while I'm waiting for you guys? And he kind of looks at me and says, yeah, yeah, sure, good, good, go ahead, you know. So anyway, I come back in about uh, 10 minutes later, and there's seven or eight guys around there. And so uh, they tell me, so well, we're going we're gonna to lay hands on you, and we're going to pray for you. And, uh, and you, can, you can sit down, you can kneel down, you can stand up, whatever you want to do. So I'm going, well, uh, I, think I'll, uh, I think I'll stand up. And, uh, and this little voice inside my head says, get down on your knees. And I go, nah, I think I'll stand up. <laughs> you know, so I stood up and they prayed over me for about, oh, God, I don't know, maybe at least 10 minutes. And they weren't getting anywhere. And so we paused. And a couple of them, you know, kind of left. It's kind of like, man, this guy ain't going to get it. You know, let's get out of here. All right. So, you know, a few of them left. And so, uh, you know, then a moment later, I'm going, okay, well, 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 let's try this again. And they say, okay, all right. So then they start praying for me again. And, and this time, it's the same thing. You know, you can sit down, stand up, or get on your knees. And I thought, well, this time I'll sit, right? So, uh, so as, as I'm sitting down, a little voice inside my head says, you need to be on your knees. Right, and said, no, I think I'll sit. <laughs> so, anyway, so anyway, so I, I sat there prayed for another 10 minutes while the rest of the guys, you know, they, they were praying over me and praying over me and praying over me. Nothing's happening, right? Nothing's happening. And so uh, they get discouraged. And like I say, after about 10 minutes, man, you know, we start out with about 10 guys, and at this point there's probably seven. And uh, and after this final group quits, man, there's only one guy left. <laughs> you know? <laughs> anyway, so... Um, so anyway, I said, well, come on, come on, let's do it again, right? So this time, this time I got down on my knees. I tried standing, I tried sitting. This time I hit my knees and I obeyed what that voice inside my head was telling me. And instantaneously, man, I began speaking in tongues. Instantaneously. Uh, it's a whole new language, whole new language coming out of my mouth. And I'm just, I'm just going 90 to nothing, man, speaking in tongues. And, uh, and I'm getting lit, and I'm pretty excited, and I feel my, down in my gut, man, I'm feeling kind of shaky, right? And and I'm telling the guy, I'm going, wow, I'm feeling kind of shaky down in here. And he says, well, that's just the Holy Spirit moving. And I'm like, oh, 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 okay, all right. So now this was like in the spring of 1980, all right? Now you, you'd think, well, I just had a great experience. Boy, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be set free. I'm going to go walk this. Oh, about five weeks later, man, I took another tumble, got shit-faced, and kind of stayed that way for a while. Anyway, so here we are, man. It's a year later, and uh, and and I uh, and this is when I'm uh, I'm sitting in my bathroom at, at my mother's house, and I, I was going to broadcasting school at that time. And uh, it's about eight o'clock in the morning, and and uh, anyway, I, I wasn't taking a dump or anything. It was just uh, you know kind of kind of sitting on the toilet seat, and I had a you know had a Bible next to me. It was a uh, like a Thompson chain. Anyway, and that Bible was open, and so, uh, but I, I wasn't really looking at it. I kind of just had my my head in my hands, and and I was, you know, I was bemoaning. I was bemoaning my fate, man. I was full of despair. I was full of fear. I was I, I was scared. I was in a bad way, and I knew it. And I remember the thought that I had, and I said, "Oh my God." I had been kicked out of the kingdom of God before I even got there. And boom, 
all of a sudden, here's Yahshua, and he's standing right next to me. All right, I'm, I'm seeing him in the spirit. And all of a sudden, he begins to read to me out loud from the sixth chapter of the book of John, which is where the Bible was open. And, I, and I'm going to tell you something. I, I never in my life could ever even begin to dream or imagine of anything so beautiful as the sound of his voice. You know, this was not the, the, the mighty rushing waters. This was, this was so pure, so sweet, so gentle, so full of love and compassion and mercy. And all of this just filled his voice. And as he spoke to me, his words became like a laser beam, like a shaft, a thin shaft of white light. And it pierced my right ear. It bypassed my mind, went down into my heart, and just exploded in his presence. And I got to tell you something, man. I wept, and I wept, and I wept, and I wept. I had never dreamed of anything so beautiful in all my life. And so... I stayed there with him for many weeks, basking and basking and basking in his presence. Right, like I said, I was in broadcasting school at the time, and, and, we, and I'd graduated in May of that year. Well, anyway, so uh, true to form, I screwed up again. It, it wasn't so much uh, you know drinking and cocaine or anything like that, but I, I'd done something in July. It was about four months later, three, four months later. And uh, anyway, I was at I was at my girlfriend's house, and uh, and I'd done something really stupid, and really really stupid. And so, uh, you know, I kind of yeah, there was a bedroom I was staying in. There. I kind of gotten kicked out of uh, kicked out of my mom's house, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I was kind of you know, like I said, I'd done something kind of stupid. And again, I'm kind of kind of laying on the bed, just kind of groaning, right, and going, oh God, I think I lost the light. I think I lost the light. Oh. God, right? And so all of a sudden, from out of the depths of my being, right, rose up this white cross, this pure white light, just pure white light. And this rose up out of my being, and it lit up my mind. I mean, I just saw it there. And uh, it just kind of got fixed, and you know. And after that, I would, I would, I wouldn't feel too, uh, uh, you know, too boogie anymore. <laughs> I wouldn't feel too boogie. I just kind of forgot all of a sudden, like what I was so miserable about. But it hadn't, you know. Anyway, so that was like the very first vision that I ever had, and it was a little bit more than a vision because what God had done was He was embedding that cross into my being. He embedded it. And you know, I can be, uh, I can be pretty slow on the uptake sometimes, you know. Um, sometimes I wonder if I got all my brain cells working, you know, but anyway, but I'll tell you what, man, it was years and years later before I even realized that that cross that I had seen was a vision and that the cross that he embedded in me at that time was going to, uh, is going to take me places that, uh, I'll tell you what, folks, few people have ever gone. And I'm not trying to say that to brag or anything like that, but this has to do with the narrow way, and uh, and the way is narrow. It really is. I mean, uh, Yahshua says, "Few there be that find it." Well, when you have to find something, that entails you have to seek for it, right? 
You're not going to find the narrow way unless you seek the narrow way, right? Well, the cross is the narrow way. And this was the beginning of my walk right here. It was not long after seeing that vision of the cross rise up within me that uh, that I was on a road trip, you know, with, with Yahshua. <laughs> I was on a road trip, and this was just basically with a with a pack on my back and, uh, and, and my right thumb out on the freeway trying to hitch a ride. And, uh, and I'll continue on with this in a little bit because this is the next part of the story here. This is just the beginning. This is the next part. You know, so I ended up uh, hitchhiking down to uh, Santa Barbara, California, and, uh, you know, visiting every little town along the way. I'd met a guy out on the freeway, and you know, he was from Canada, so we, we started a pretty good conversation. And, uh, and we ended up uh, going all the way down to uh, Santa Cruz together before we ended up splitting up. I ended up going farther down to uh, to Santa Barbara. Well, I'm sitting there in Santa Barbara, and all of a sudden I get this earthquake, right? And it's like, and I had this little radio, right? And I had it on the uh, on on the dresser in this hotel room I was in, and everything began shaking and moving, and the radio falls off on the floor, and I'm going, I'm getting the hell out of here, man! I do not even want to be in earthquake country. So, uh, you know, I just kind of checked out of the hotel that day. You know, I went to the bus station and picked up a ticket to head back up north. Right? I was uh, I was actually out. You know, trying to get uh, a job in radio, so I had a lot of uh, had a lot of tapes with me and whatnot. So I headed back up north because it was one area of California that I'd passed through, and it was absolutely gorgeous, and it was Chico, and uh, so uh, and Chico was a pretty good place. And uh, uh, anyway, so I, I went to Chico, and uh, and of course the uh, you know I, I get off the bus and uh, first place I go is I uh, pick up a hotel room that night, and. Uh, and then I headed down to, uh, you know, to the big college tavern. I think it was called Madison Bear Garden. And I got shit-faced there. And uh, anyway, stumbled back home that night, I don't know, 12, 30, midnight, just kind of blitzed. And uh, when I woke up the next morning with a terrible hangover, and I'm going, oh, God. Oh, sheesh, I don't believe the mess I'm in now. So I, I, I called AA again. I went, this, this is nuts. Well, I was called AA again, and they, uh, they sent a guy over. It was a black guy, and, uh, and his name was Jesse James, right? And he was about the neatest guy I, I'd ever met. And I'm sitting in his coffee shop with Jesse, right? And, uh, and anyway, uh, he starts asking me some questions, so I give him a brief little testimony about, uh, about Yashu, and he says, ah, I thought I saw that light in your eyes. So, you know, and, and here's the deal. This, this was the really cool thing about AA back in the old days, right? is that uh, Jesse says, you know, where are you staying? And I said, well, I just got this hotel room here. You know, I just kind of breezed into town. And he says, well, look, why don't you grab your stuff, check out of the hotel, and uh, come down and stay, stay at my house, and, uh, you know, and, and, I'll, and I'll sponsor you. And I'm going, oh, my God. So I did. And uh, now Jesse used to take me to the AA meetings all the time, and uh, hey, they weren't much more than maybe five minutes from Jesse's house, but if you had to walk it, it was about a half hour so, uh, and I had to, and, and I was going to meetings every single day, twice a day. I was very serious about, about, about trying to clean myself up, very serious. And uh, so anyway, so, uh, you know, I'd have to walk to these meetings. Well, it would take me a half hour to get there and a half hour to get back, and I was going twice a day. So, uh, you know, Jesse kind of pulled me aside, and he says, you know, Michael, why don't you uh, pray in tongues all the way to the meeting?" And then on the way back, pray in tongues on the way back. And I went, oh, wow, okay, well, that's, that's a pretty good idea. 
So I did that for about uh, two, three months. And, uh, you know, and here I am, man. I'm, I'm praying in tongues for two hours a day, right? And uh, all of a sudden, my mind is really clearing up. The fog is lifting from my mind, and, I, and, and, and my mind is quieting down. And uh, anyway, so uh, so anyway, I, I'd stayed there in, uh, in Chico with uh, Jesse and his uh, roommate, another guy named Bob. So I'd stayed there in Chico with those guys for about, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe four months and uh, learned how to pray. At, at, at least to that degree, to where I'm just just praying in tongues, and you know, to get consistent with it, and uh, and then I found myself with a uh, job offer up uh, back up in Washington at a town called uh, Aberdeen, and so anyway, so I kind of packed up, hopped on a bus, and uh, and, and went back to uh, went back home to Seattle, and uh, got a ride to Aberdeen, and got the job, and uh, so I stayed in Aberdeen for about uh, you know three four months after that, and uh, you know. It, yeah, I stumbled again. I sure did. I fell flat on my face after leaving, you know, Jesse and Bob in the AA meetings and just going back off to, uh, you know, to a coastal town in Washington and getting shit-faced all over again. And uh, and it was, you know, again, I'm finding myself in a misery. And I got fired from that job. I screwed up on a uh, on a piece of production, and, uh, you know, and, and the boss read me the riot act, and, uh, you know, he, he fired me. So, uh, so went back home again, and uh, you know went back to mom's house and stayed with her for uh, you know a couple three months until she got tired of me and she booted me out of the house. <laughs> so here I find myself again, you know, back out on a freeway, you know, with, with my thumb and whatnot. And so I headed back down to uh, to California, and I uh, headed back down to Chico. And uh, headed back down to find, uh, you know, Jesse and, uh, and his roommate, Bob, and praise God, they were still there. But uh, things had changed a little bit, and uh, the, the arrangement was not going to work out, the, you know, the way that it had. Well, outside of Chico, California, was this uh, Christian retreat up in the uh, Cohasset Mountains. And Jesse uh, used to work there, uh, you know, as a volunteer. And I'll tell you a little bit about Jesse is that uh, Jesse was with the original gangs that uh, that David Wilkerson came to when David Wilkerson went to uh, went to New York. And if you've ever read the story of the cross and the switchblade, if you haven't, I, I highly recommend it. David Wilkerson was quite a guy. Anyway, so Jesse was in that original movement with the street gangs in New York with David Wilkerson. And, uh, man, I'll tell you what, man, what a... Diamond to find out in the middle of nowhere in California, man. A guy that had been discipled by David Wilkerson. Anyway, so, like I say, Jesse had worked at this place called the Springs of Living Water, and he knew the directors up there. And uh, and, and, he, um, and he he highly recommended that I, I go up there and uh, see if I could get on do, doing a job, doing anything. I didn't really have, uh, you know, a whole lot of, a uh, whole lot of skills. The only thing I knew was, uh, you know, how to, uh, how to entertain people and, uh, you know, and BS them on a radio if I needed to. So, uh, so I thought, you know, this is, this is really big. And, and so, uh, you know, Jesse offered to drive me up there and it was about 10 miles away. And man, it was a, you know, this was probably, I don't know, July of, uh, you know, July of 82, and man, it was hot out. 
Anyway, so I turned Jesse down, and I thought, no, I'm, I'm going to walk this. I'm going to walk these 10 miles, and I'm going to pray in tongues the whole way there because I really, really, really want to be in this place. So I did, and, uh, you know, put on my pack, and I walked 10 miles in the hot sun, and, you know, I, you know, I probably had, had, you know, left Jesse's at maybe, uh, I don't know, 11 in the morning, maybe noon, and here it was probably, uh, you know, 6 o'clock, and I'm just now, you know, walking up the road because I had to stop so many times that I didn't bring any water with me, you know. Anyway, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cut this one off here, uh, and the, the, the place, was, like I say, was called the Springs of Living Water, and it was, oh, my God, oh, my God. I can hardly wait to tell you the stories of this place. And I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.